You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today. Hey, joining me on today's program, if you are a longtime listener, I know you'll recognize his name. Mr. Ian Gordon of the Long Wave Group will be joining me in segments two and three of today's program. Um, if you're a new listener, be sure to stay tuned. Uh, Ian has, oh, approaching probably 50 years of experience researching monetary policy and economic cycles, and I know you're going to appreciate his perspective. And if you're a new listener also here at RLA Radio, we are all about offering you a different perspective, a perspective that you may not hear anywhere else, and we're all about education. And we do have some resources, free resources, for our listeners to access if you are so inclined. You can go to the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And you can download the podcast version of any of our programs there. You can also, if you would like, subscribe to our weekly market update newsletter. It's called Portfolio Watch. It is delivered every Monday at 5 p.m. right after market close. Um, and we also have uh, another site that you can visit if you'd like to check out one of our local educational events. Each month we do an educational event that may help you maximize the benefits that you get from Social Security, may give you some strategies and tactics that you can use to save taxes over the long run on your IRA or 401k. And we also talk about what's going on in the economy and threats to your retirement and things that you may think about doing to protect yourself. So those meetings also offer not only some specific hands-on strategies for you to consider, but also some valuable perspective. Now, speaking of perspective, in this segment, I want to talk a bit about central bank policies as Many of you know, if you've been a long-time listener, and if I want to exercise full disclosure here, truth be told, I am fundamentally opposed to private bankers controlling monetary policy, which is the case worldwide today. The Federal Reserve, which is the central bank of the United States, is controlled by central bankers. It's a group of private bankers. See, back in 1913, then-President Woodrow Wilson, in December of 1913, just as Congress was breaking for their winter break, their Christmas break, he signed into law something called the Federal Reserve Act. The Federal Reserve Act made the Federal Reserve, this private group of bankers, the group that would be in charge of monetary policy. Now, whenever you put private bankers in charge of monetary policy, which incidentally has been tried many, many times throughout history, history teaches us that it never works in the long term. And of course, I need to digress here because you probably remember what your history teacher or history professor told you. Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Well, history teaches us that putting central bankers or putting private bankers, rather, in charge of monetary policy just doesn't work. In fact, to think that private bankers are putting the interest of the public ahead of their own interests is really unrealistic. In fact, 
Um, many folks who hear this don't realize the impact that it may have on them and their investments and their future, but we'll get into that in more detail with Ian Gordon in the next couple segments. Now, beating up on central banks is never politically popular, at least in some circles. Uh, there are some political candidates in this current election cycle that will tell you that, and there have been other politicians that have been critical of Federal Reserve policies. Um, in fact, uh, one of them, former presidential candidate Ron Paul, has been a guest here on this program. Um, and he will tell you that criticizing Federal Reserve policy or central bank policy sometimes is not politically effective. Now, to criticize central bankers and be skeptical as to whether or not we want private bankers in control of monetary policy is nothing new. We can go all the way back and look at what Thomas Jefferson had to say about it. Thomas Jefferson understood this well, and he had a lot to say on the topic. In fact, one of his quotes, which is now becoming more famous due to present monetary policy, rings very true. Here is what Mr. Jefferson had to say. If the American people ever allow private bankers to control the issue of their currency, first through inflation, then through deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until they wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. Then there's this one, also attributable to Mr. Jefferson. He said this, I sincerely believe that banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies and that the principle of spending money to be paid by posterity under the name of funding is but swindling futurity on a large scale. Now, maybe to put that quote in more modern language, Mr. Jefferson is saying that banking establishments are more dangerous than the military, and if you're spending money today and having your kids pay for it tomorrow, you're stealing from them. Now, here is a bit more perspective for you. Central banks controlled by private bankers really exist in nearly every economy today. And they still enjoy a fair amount of believability worldwide. But I believe the day is soon coming when central bankers will be recognized as the cause of the problem rather than the solution to all things economic. Now, a gentleman by the name of Francisco Brunamonte, who was writing for the Mises Institute, had this to say recently in an article that he published titled, Central Banks Are Just Getting Warmed Up. And I'm going to give you just a bit from that article. According to all central banks, one of the main problems they are called to solve is that countries cannot reach their inflation target of 2%. Even their religious trust in the long-discredited Phillips curve cannot explain why price inflation is low in many countries despite historically low unemployment rates. Now, if you're not familiar with the Phillips curve in which Mr. Brunamonte states that central bankers have a religious trust, the Phillips curve just theorizes that the relationship between unemployment and inflation is inverse. In other words, when unemployment is low, inflation is high, and when unemployment is high, inflation is low. Now, the Phillips curve was first discussed by its developer, who not surprisingly 
had the last name of Phillips, Bill Phillips to be precise. This was discussed in 1958, and when Mr. Phillips developed this theory, he studied 100 years of wage inflation and unemployment in the UK. Now, his theory was embraced by some and rejected by others, including Milton Friedman, who was a pretty well-respected economist. Now, Mr. Friedman argued that wages would automatically adjust to the market on an inflation-adjusted basis. And given that the official unemployment rate is very low, as is the official inflation rate, that would seem to make the case for Mr. Friedman's argument. Yet these central bankers embrace this strategy. Now I'm going to talk more about this in the last segment and what it might mean for you, but here's the bottom line. Whenever money is created, whether you call it quantitative easing or whatever you call it, it's got to go somewhere. History tells us that it goes typically into stocks and now into bonds. If you think about the investments that you have in your IRA or 401k, they're probably stock and bond based. So there's a good chance in my view that these assets are overvalued and due for a correction. If you're close to retirement, you want to make sure that you're ready for that. There are resources available at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com for you to check out. You could also check out our events at www.socialsecuritydinner.com. I'll be back with Mr. Ian Gordon. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Uh, on the phone with me today, joining me from his home in Canada, is Mr. Ian Gordon. And uh, for those of you that have been longtime listeners of the program, uh, Ian has, I think he first appeared on uh, one of the radio programs that I hosted maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Ian might have a better idea. Uh, Ian has uh, really sparked my interest and, and been a mentor in a lot of ways when it comes to uh, be motivating me to, to study uh, macroeconomic history, fiat currencies, and gold. So whenever I get a chance to talk to Ian, I'm, I'm always glad to do that. In fact, before we started recording the interview today, I think we chatted for about 20 minutes. Uh, Ian uh, has his uh, website that you can go visit. There's a lot of writings, information, and research there. The website is thelongwavegroup.com. Um, these days, I think Ian uh, does a lot of uh, researching and, uh, and reading, but uh, you're really enjoying life uh, on a big piece of property in a remote area of British Columbia, I think, Ian, would be fair to say. So welcome back to the program. Glad you're here. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, Ian, let's start for our listeners maybe that aren't familiar with um, you know, a lot of the work that you've done over the years. Um, I think there's an old saying, uh, I think it was King Solomon who wrote that there's nothing new under the sun. And we today are seeing um, this epidemic, to use that term, of money creation, of just creating fiat currencies. Uh, but through a lot of your work, uh, you know, there, there are some nuances and some, some variations on a theme, but certainly this has been going on uh, throughout history. Can, can you comment a little bit about, you know, maybe a couple of historical examples of, of when money printing has occurred and, 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 you know, what the inevitable outcome ultimately will be? Well, I think you know for 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 your listeners, it's it's very important to understand that um, we're now you know in a 
a, a, a paper money system where, where money is created out of nothing. And, and essentially so that the value of the money is completely is, is eroding uh, all the time. As more and more of this money is created, uh, the value of the money is actually being eroded. And one of the best ways to measure this, and for a long time when I was writing, I said the most important chart that people could ever look at would be the Dow-Gold ratio chart. And I know now Bill Bonner is talking a lot about the Dow-Gold ratio chart. What this chart is, is it's the measure of the value of the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, versus the value of an ounce of gold. And that chart, you know, I, I basically mapped it into my long wave work and showed that the 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 value has the ups and downs as throughout the long wave when when paper, the Dow Jones Industrial Averages are, are the measurement of you know paper values of stocks uh, versus the gold values. Sometimes the value of, the, of stocks is uh, far, far stronger than the value of gold, and other times during the cycle, the value of gold is far stronger than the value of paper. Uh, for instance, if we look at our, uh, the current long wave, which uh, I would say, you know, I divided it into the four seasons of the year, and the long wave is about 60, 70 years long. It was initially sort of uh, developed by Nikolai Kondratiev, a Russian economist, in the 1920s, and I effectively used his work and then uh, enlarged on his work to uh, develop my own work on the subject. So that the spring, which is the beginning of of the of the of the each cycle, is the uh, rebirth of the economy. It occurs in the spring, just as it does. It's the rebirth of. Uh, uh, of, of nature, really, in 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 our own world, it, it happens in the spring. The, the trees start to bud and flower. The flowers start to uh, produce, and so on. And that's very good for the for the economy. So that um, uh, so that stocks do very well in the spring, and the value of the Dow Jones increases quite dramatically during the spring as as the economy performs and grows. Then you come into the sum of the economy, which in our cycle started in 1966. And that's the always has been the inflationary period of the cycle. And therefore, the stocks don't really perform versus inflation. And gold really does perform. So gold goes from $35 an ounce at the beginning of, it, of the summer cycle, 1966, to eight hundred and fifty dollars in nineteen eighty and the ratio at the end of in nineteen eighty of the value of the Dow versus an ounce of gold is actually one to one so you get an extreme low re relationship gold to to stocks then in the autumn that's always the biggest bull market in gold stocks and real estate and that occurred between uh, nineteen eighty eighty one and 2000 and the stocks outperformed down they went uh, from sort of 800 on the Dow all the way up to uh, I think it was 16 16,000 but anyway the ratio the Dow gold ratio the it takes 44 ounces of gold to buy the Dow in uh, July 1999 
And since then, that's been the peak. And since then, gold has been outperforming the stocks. Now, that doesn't mean every day that gold's going to do better than the stock market, but relative. So that today, we're at about 16 to 1 from 44 to 1. So uh, we're going down to an extreme low ratio where the gold is going to outperform stocks. So the the bear market in stocks that started in 2000 and again in 2007 has been effectively negated by a massive money printing uh, process that you know creation of paper money. For instance, in 2008, I think the Federal Reserve created something like 20 trillion 20 trillion dollars to negate the 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 real crisis in the in the banking system. So um, we're now going into a period where gold is going to outperform the stock market, and eventually this performance is going to be very evident because stocks have been held at a very high level simply through the money printing process. Um, and when this happens, uh, you know the stock market will crash. Like it did after 1929, I could envisage, you know, a 90% drop in stock values as they did between 1929 and 1932. And gold will go to a ratio at least of one to one, and perhaps I've always said it may go to a quarter to one. So we're going to see the value a quarter of an ounce of gold will buy the Dow Jones Industrials. It's going to be some a very very extreme low ratio anyway, and gold is far the far better place to be in at this period in time in, in, the, in the cycle than, than in the stock market. Ian, if we go back and study history and take a look, for example, at when Weimar Germany printed money um, uh, after World War I, uh, when John Law printed money in France in the early 1700s, I mean, aren't we headed for a predictable outcome here? Well, I would say it's it, it, it's certainly predict it's certainly predictable, and it's certainly uh, predictable that the, the the money system is going to collapse. Uh, again, if we go back to the long wave system, whenever you create paper money at infinitum, which is what is happening at this at this stage in the cycle, since effectively since 1971, when Nixon took the United States off gold. Whenever you create paper money, you know, out of nothing, which is what is happening today. I mean, people, most people don't realize if you get a mortgage, you know, the bank creates the money to pay that mortgage. There was no money. They just give, they credit your account with the amount of mortgage that you have to pay the vendor. And, and that money's being created from nothing. And the same, if you go and get a car loan, the money's created from nothing. It's just added to the money system. And this is what's happening with paper money. And this is what really happened in Germany, so that eventually the German uh, currencies, um, effectively, you know, it was something like, uh, and I've got uh, these uh, German uh, marks and so on, that, you know, it was millions of marks issued. And people, children use them as, uh, building blocks, the houses and so on, all the money, and they used them because the people were so poor, they used the money to effectively 
to burn the money, they whatever money got, got paid. And Germans were paid twice a day. They they had to carry the payment back in wheelbarrows um, because of the massive creation of the of the German currency. And so we're, we're, we're very close to this period now where the whole money system, the world money system is, is, is going to break down. And with it, we're going to have, you know, effectively that means you're going to have a massive inflation occurring because the value of your money is going to be worthless, as it was in Germany. So, you know, and, and the same, you know, in Venezuela, you look at the stock market, the stock market is... You know, in, in Venezuelan boulevards, has done extremely. You know, is is extremely high, but the the boulevard is worthless. So it really doesn't matter that the stock market values are, are high in boulevards. They're not high in dollars, or certainly not high in gold. And Ian, I did a piece a while ago for for some clients, and I I think these numbers are right, but uh, I'm in the ballpark anyway. So full disclosure here, I haven't researched this before our conversation, but I believe an ounce of gold priced in German marks um, in 1919 uh, was about 170 marks, and then by November of 1923, when uh, the mark had been devalued by a factor of 29 billion, uh, gold had actually increased price in marks priced in German marks by a factor of $87 billion. So you would have actually increased your wealth by 300% during that time frame had you had gold. So uh, there, there's certainly a lesson there. And w- would you agree then that you know tangible assets uh, like gold and silver and maybe some other tangible assets are certainly should be part of everybody's portfolio? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, to me, you know, when you're looking at things like the Dow-Gold ratio, which is, which is effective at effectively a paper versus gold value. Uh, gold has outperformed uh, uh, paper uh, for a very, very, very long time, effectively since 1971, you know, when it was $35 an ounce when Nixon went off the gold standard. So um, it's outperformed paper uh, because they've created so much paper um, that uh, the value of, of of currencies has, has been diminished considerably. I mean, I was talking to you, Dennis, about buying a house. My, my wife and I bought a house in Winnipeg in 1968 for $15,000 in a good area of Winnipeg. It's called River Heights. And I went back and I looked at the value of those same houses in River Heights on the same street, and they're over $300,000 today. Well, the house hasn't changed. It may have been painted or whatever, but it hasn't effectively changed. And, uh, you know, the the value is not the value that the house has increased in value from fifteen to 300000 It's the fact that the paper has decreased in, uh, so much in value, and gold has increased considerably in value. Um so, it, it, you know, when the paper money system crashes, and I believe we're, we're extremely close to the system coming apart, uh, you know, the, the gold and, and, and silver will become sort of the, the premier, uh, the currencies that people will turn to because they can't trust paper anymore. They won't trust paper as they did not trust paper money in Germany in 22, 23. 
Well, the clock tells me that we're going to have to end it there for this segment. Uh, my guest today on the program is Mr. Ian Gordon. Uh, you can read his just wealth of work at thelongwavegroup.com. I'd encourage you to do that. And uh, the good news is that Ian will be back for another segment, which will continue right after these words. So I'd encourage you to stay with us. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. My guest today is Mr. Ian Gordon. Um, Ian's been uh, a friend for a long time. Ian uh, is a frequent guest or has been a frequent guest on the program. I'm a big uh, fan of his uh, life work, if you will, which you can learn more about at thelongwavegroup.com. I'd encourage you to do that. And uh, I'm going to jump right in, Ian, because it seems that whenever we start chatting, uh, 12 minutes goes by in a big hurry. So let's. in the last segment, we talked about literally money creation and you know i live in a very rural area north of grand rapids michigan and there we have a saying that uh, if you put perfume on a pig it's still a pig and if you call money printing something other than money printing it's still money printing so let's just examine what's going on um, in the repo market now and for our listeners that might not be familiar with that the, the repo market is really the the market where banks lend each other money overnight short term and Ian, there's been some crazy stuff going on there. The Fed is really injecting money, newly created money, into the banking system to keep things rolling. What what do you read into this, and what's your comment? Well, you know, it, it tells us the fact that they they're putting in um, sixty billion, a hundred billion, you know, a night. It means that, that there's obviously some sort of crisis where banks. The interbank lending that you know the repo market is it's not it, you know banks are not uh, lending to other banks as they uh, normally would in the overnight market and so the Fed has to step in and uh, bring in that money it, it indicates you know a, a lack of confidence on on with with regards to the banks to the the credit worthiness of other banks within the system so that the Fed basically has to to come in and, and, and look after the issues so that these banks can get money. Now, we don't know which, which banks this is. We have no idea what the banks, but it means that there is a problem. And it, it reminds me very much of the beginnings of the problem, you know, 2007. I wrote a piece, and it's on my website still, called This Is It, where I forecast that the whole banking system would collapse, and it effectively did collapse, but had to be bailed out by the Fed uh, in 2007. I published a piece, so it reminds me very much of that period in time where you know the Federal Reserve is having to step in to sort of uh, shore up some some banks. We don't know which banks they are. It could be. A Deutsche Bank, you know, and it, could, it doesn't have to be American banks. It could be German banks. I mean, the Fed bailed out a lot of European banks in 2008. So we don't know where it is, but it means that there's a major, major problem within the banking system. Do you think, Ian, that the Fed is in a position, given the given how big this problem could be, I mean, when you look at the derivative exposure of these big banks, when, 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 you, when, you, when you just look at the, the numbers associated with this, 
Does the Fed have enough bullets in the gun to be able to, you know, pull a rabbit out of the hat one more time, or will this finally be the deflationary event that a lot of us have been anticipating? Well, I I, I don't believe that it does because ultimately everything everything is uh, result, revolves around confidence, and um, the fact is that confidence was almost lost in two thousand and eight. Uh, and it took something like over twenty trillion dollars of money printing. Twenty trillion dollars of money printing. You, you know, it's a, an absolutely unimaginable amount of money that's being created to save the system at that time. Well, at this time, you know, particularly when you when you start to look at the derivatives uh, that are associated, most of the derivatives are credit derivatives. Uh, and you know, a derivative is simply you know there's a buy and a and a, and a seller. So there's one long and one short in the in the derivatives market. So if one can't basically honor its obligations, it takes down the other. And we're talking multi multi trillions of dollars. And uh, you know, people most people really don't understand the, you know what a trillion is. And I have to admit that I didn't couldn't measure it, but I um, it, it, it's so unimaginably large. It wasn't a number for, until fairly recently because it was just so big. And the point is that uh, you know the derivatives market it, 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 to try and bail out uh, derivatives, you know the derivative exposure, and you can take. Bank like Deutsche Bank, I, I think its exposure is something like forty trillion dollars. Well, you know, it, it, it's so it's so enormous that the Fed could it would be impossible for the Fed to bail it out because the dollar would be basically, you know, get hammered in terms of its value. So I just don't know, you know, when the system starts to collapse, how they're going to uh, basically put the thing together again. And I, uh, again, I'm fairly confident that once the system collapses, you know, the whole economy will collapse because the paper money system will collapse. People don't realize how, how serious it's going to be. It means that, you know, we're, everything works on credit in our economy. You know, it's 30 days, generally 30 days credit. The trucks deliver stuff to the grocery stores. They're paid in 30 days. Look, the farmers that harvest the, the the produce, they're paid, you know, in 30 days. Everything is based on credit. When the system collapses, the credit system collapses, and there's no money available. So eventually, the economy just basically ceases to function. It can't function without the money, and the money is worthless. It's just like in Paris, you know, you know, in in John Law's time, and again in in the, you know in the in the late 1800s, the farmers refused to deliver uh, grain to Paris because they were being paid in paper money, and the value of paper money was worthless. So. Um, effectively, people in Paris were starving, and that's really what brought about the, the the French Revolution. And I think it was Marie Antoinette was credited with the thing that you know when she was told they couldn't get any bread, the people, the peasants couldn't get bread in in Paris. She said, "Well, let them eat cake," and, and she suffered the guillotine for the for that. But um, the thing is, 
the whole system, when it collapses, the whole economy will collapse, and the availability of the economy to function will be uh, will cease to exist. There will be no groceries in grocery stores. There will be no gas in the gas stations. That just won't happen. The whole system is going to fall apart. Well, and if you look, Ian, at what happened in Weimar, Germany, and, and you can correct me if my, my dates are off or my months are off, but as I recall, the the mark failed in September, and it was November before commerce started again, and uh, they, you know, put the rent in mark in place, which uh, is a story in and of itself. But, you know, there were 60 days there that basically commerce just basically stopped because there was no way to conduct any kind of commerce. And I'm sure the same thing may have happened in John Law's France and whenever, you know, a currency is devalued to the point that confidence is lost. So um, do, do you have any any thoughts on the fact that the U.S. dollar is still the world reserve currency, that that may delay the day of reckoning? No, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, uh, the fact is that, yes, it's purely a fiat currency. Yes, it is. A, it, it's already losing that reserve status. I mean, things like oil sales that used to be, you know, all done in, in, in dollars are being done in, in other currencies. Now the Chinese, um, you know, are, are forcing people to to basically you know, sell their oil to China in uh, yuan and 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 uh, Russia and and China are doing deals in yuan and and rubles and and so slowly the do, you know the, the dollar is 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 losing its 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 world reserve status. It's a, this is a slow process, but when the system collapses, it becomes a very fast process. There's a great book, by the way, on on the Weimar Germany. It's called When Money Fails, and I think the author is Ferguson, so I would encourage people to uh, read that book uh, on, on Weimar Germany and the failure of the mark at that time. And you can see, you know, when money fails, and this is what we're going to have. When money fails, we are going to see the failure of the paper money system worldwide. And Russia and China are preparing for that failure by accumulating oodles of gold. Well, Ian, and whenever you look at these economic cycles that you outlined in the first segment, there's really kind of an associated currency cycle where, you know, currency and money start out as being the same thing, where we're actually using gold and silver as money. But then, you know, as time evolves and, you know, we have a pure fiat currency, um, you know, whether we're talking about the Roman Empire, or John Law's France or Weimar Germany, we see, uh, you know, too, mu too much of these currencies being created, and then we have these inevitable economic consequences. And it seems like whenever a currency fails, we go back to some type of a gold-based or, or precious metals-based system. Do you see that happening again? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the paper money system will fail. As I just said, I think China and Russia are already preparing for for that, for a, for a gold-backed system. Um, you know, China doesn't sort of has tries to hide the amount of gold that it owns, but it's long been uh, by people <laughs> smarter than I am uh, have indicated that China has at least uh, 20,000 tons of gold, the Chinese government, and the Chinese people have about 12,000 tons of gold. Uh, they legalized uh, uh, the possession by people of, in China in about 2,000 for people to 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 invest in gold. So, um, and 
Russia's been buying gold, uh, multiples of gold as well, so that uh, they're preparing for the collapse of the system. Um, we don't know. The United States purports to have 8,300 8, tons of gold, but I doubt that that's true. And so it's very difficult to know that when the system collapses, how the United States, how the dollar is going to be backed by gold. But China and Russia will back their currencies with gold. Ian, very quickly, in the time we have left, do you have an opinion on cryptocurrencies? Do you see cryptocurrencies uh, fading? And we're going to be talking about cryptocurrencies like we're you know, reminiscing about a lot of the car companies that failed in the 1920s? Or do you think moving ahead, cryptocurrencies will have some legitimate place in uh, the economy and in, in currencies? You know, I, I don't really... You know, it's 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 never been my... Uh, you know, I don't like things that I don't have control of. And, uh, you know, I can control my ownership in gold and silver. Um, I don't have to, uh, you know, and I do control my ownership in gold and silver. But, you, you know, I don't, in a cryptocurrency, you don't, you don't really have control. It's, it's out there in the ether, the, the control of it. So I'm not, you know, a, a great fan of cryptocurrencies. And I, I really don't believe... Uh, that they are going to be, you know, uh, are going to be the sort of the mainstay or, or have any sort of important backing in a in a in a in a monetary system. I really just uh, I can't see it happening. Well, our guest today has been Mr. Ian Gordon. Ian's website is thelongwavegroup.com. There is a, a wealth of information there and many years of, of work and research. I would encourage you to check it out. Ian, always a pleasure to catch up with you. I sure appreciate you joining us today and uh, would love to have you back down the road. Well, thank you very much for having me, Dennis. We will be back after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. Glad you're along today, and thanks again to Mr. Ian Gordon for joining us on today's program. Now, in the first segment of today's program, I was talking a bit about an article uh, written by Francesco Brunamonte titled, Central Banks Are Just Getting Warmed Up. And central banks, despite the fact that the Phillips curve, which we talked about in the first segment, is really not working. Central banks still enjoy a lot of credibility. You hear among investors things like never bet against the Fed or the European Central Bank has the big bazooka primed and all the market participants monitor each meeting of these bankers to understand what the next policy should be and how they should be positioned when that policy is implemented. Now, central banks meet regularly, and at these meetings, there is really something new that is constantly being discussed. These central bankers are brainstorming to devise ever-new stimulus programs, and as Mr. Brunamonte correctly observes, and I'm quoting from his article, inevitably, the one-off unconventional interventions quickly become the new normal. And we all know that quantitative easing, which is just another word for money printing, 
That was supposed to be a one-time emergency response to the 2008 crisis. However, when QE stopped and the Fed tried to raise interest rates, the market panicked. And now the Fed has embarked in a new round of QE, or quantitative easing, although the chair of the Fed, Mr. Powell, said, don't call it QE. Now, the bigger point here is that the central banks, as Mr. Brunamonte states in his article, are regularly meeting to try to figure out new, ever more innovative ways to stimulate the world economy. If you consider central bank action since the financial crisis, you'd have to, inc- you'd have to conclude that central banks are increasingly desperate. Now, if you remember 10 years ago, as I just mentioned, when central bankers decided to engage in a program of quantitative easing, also known as money creation out of thin air, and they coupled this quantitative easing with zero interest rates. Now, this was to be a one-time emergency measure that they would never have to use again. And despite the insistence at the time that interest rates would return to more normal levels, it took took only a couple rate hikes to throw the financial markets into absolute turmoil. And now look where we are. In addition to negative interest rates, not just zero interest rates, negative interest rates worldwide on $17 trillion plus of sovereign debt, central bankers are continuing their program of quantitative easing. And as I mentioned, Mr. Powell says, don't call it quantitative easing. Now, in the last segment, When we talked with Ian Gordon about this issue, the Fed is literally printing $60 billion to $100 billion a day to put into the repo market. So call it what you will, but money creation continues. Now, the repo market, as we talked about in the last segment, is really uh, the overnight and short-term lending market between financial institutions. And this market actually has had some issues in that some of the over the interest rates overnight have jumped from 2% to 10% simply because some of the banks potentially don't trust loaning money to other banks. So this all suggests that despite more aggressive monetary policy by these central bankers, negative interest rates and money creation are those two aggressive forms of monetary policy we once again potentially have problems with the financial system. And you have to wonder what money experiment central bankers might try next, and I'm pretty sure that they will come up with something. Now, Mr. Brunamonte points out what you should be concerned about. He stated what I believe, and I certainly agree with him, what the inevitable outcome of such an experiment might be. He said, there is today a veritable alphabet soup of monetary policy tools, and he names them, and the result is that no asset class is free of distortion. Let me translate that for you. When no asset class is free of distortion, what Mr. Brunamonte is saying is that it creates bubbles. In his piece, he says this, and I quote, chief among these problems are a general hunt for yield in all markets setting in motion boom and bust cycles, and the inability for pension funds to provide savers with long-term real return to support retirement and future consumption. Far from being problems confined to banks and the ultra-rich, 
This diverts resources from savers and wealth generator, generators to the politically connected. Now, the reason I bring this up on today's program is simply this. You need to be aware that the behavior of central bankers is not likely to change. History teaches us that it's not likely to change. We are likely going to continue to, to, to deal with boom and bust cycles, with each bust making the last bust look light. This means that if central bankers are not likely to change their behavior, you may want to think about changing your investment behavior. I would suggest that you have to have a deflation hedge, stable assets to protect you from boom and bust cycles, and an inflation hedge to protect you from the continuing diminished purchasing power of your savings. And to that end, there's a couple resources that I will draw your attention to. You can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and on that website, you can download any podcast of this program that you'd like. You can also get a free subscription to our weekly newsletter titled Portfolio Watch, where we keep you apprised as to what our perspective is, as to what's going on in the economy and in the financial markets. And you can also go to socialsecuritydinner.com, and that site is a little bit misleading in that we not only talk about maximizing Social Security, but also these issues of protecting yourself as well, as well as saving taxes. Uh, information on our upcoming meetings at socialsecuritydinner.com. Thanks for tuning in today. I'll be back again next week.